Welcome to Salt and Light with Pastor Rodney Finch. Salt and Light is a radio outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Cary. Jesus, speak to me. Open your word and reveal your heart to me. Salt and Light is a series of verse-by-verse studies through the Bible, focusing on its practical application to our everyday lives. Salt and Light is recorded live at Calvary Chapel, Cary, in Apex, North Carolina. Stay tuned. At the end of the program, we will give you information on how to contact us, so be sure to have a pen and paper ready. Today, Pastor Rodney will be teaching from the book of John, chapter 11. So grab your Bibles and follow along. Now with today's teaching, here's Pastor Rodney. We live in a culture that is obsessed with self. We live in a culture that's obsessed with life. Uh, have you noticed how many magazines are on the shelf about life? Um, I was at Barnes Noble. Actually, I was out of South Point Mall, and they got the Barnes Noble. I was telling them first and second. I was at South Point Mall one day, and I was at Barnes Noble. And, you know, I went to Barnes Noble not because I wanted anything, but because I wanted to look cool. Because everybody looks so cool sitting in there, don't they? You got your latte, you're reading your book, you got your Mac, your notebook, your iBook, whatever. You just look cool if you're in there. So I wanted to look cool. So I went in there. And so I'm looking around and I'm looking at the magazines and I'm shocked to see how many magazines are about life. Uh, maybe I'm dating myself right here, but do you guys remember? It's not in print anymore, but do you remember the magazine Life? You remember it was a, you remember that? And uh, raise your hand again. Remember the magazine Life? Yeah. And it was a big magazine. Remember it was, a, they've gotten a lot smaller now. They've even really small, but it was a really, I just remember that big magazine. Like my mom used to have it called Life. And um, of course, uh, I think of People Magazine. People Magazine is all about life. Uh, there's a magazine called Best Life. Uh, there's a magazine called Natural Life. Another magazine called Women's Life. Another magazine called Mac Life. If you're in the computers, uh, in the Mac computers, you'll never see, I thought about this, you never see a magazine called Death. Think about it, Death. That wouldn't make a good magazine. Or Victorian Cemeteries. <laughs> Victorian Homes? Victorian cemeteries, no. Everyone, listen, everyone that lives will someday die. And yet we don't want to talk about it, do we? You know, I heard about this, this story about this woman who died. And when leaving the church, the pallbearers grabbed her casket and they were walking her out to the hearse. And one of them lost their balance and bumped into the wall and it jarred the casket. And a moan was heard from the coffin. Well, they opened the casket to find the woman was alive. Well, she lived 10 more years. Well, then she later died again, and they had the funeral at the same church and the same pallbearers. And as they're walking the casket out after the service, they were coming close to that very same wall. And her husband said, watch out for that wall. (laughs) If you've been with us. In chapter 11, you know 
This section divides. Do you know, you, were you with me? You know this section divides nicely into four sections. And we've looked at two of them so far. If you missed any of these, you can pick up a CD copy in the bookstore. The first section, we talked about the preparation of the miracle. And we've already talked about it in verses 1 through 16. As Mary and Martha sent a note to Jesus and told them that there was a problem. And Jesus talked it over with the disciples and decided to go after two days. And then the second section is the arrival of Jesus. And we talked about that as well in verses 17 through 37. Jesus and his disciples arrive in Bethany. And when he got there, he found Mary and Martha weeping at the house. He also found a house full of people weeping. And he told them, look at verse 34 in chapter 11. He told them to take me to the tomb. Well, this afternoon, we finally get Lazarus out of the grave. This is the third miracle, and I titled this section, The Miracle Itself, in verses 38 through 44. I've titled this sermon, Lazarus Come Forth. Look at Luke, uh, pardon me, John chapter 11, saints, we pick up in verse 38. If you're looking at verse 38, say amen. And then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. For he, if you're reading the King Jimmy, it says, by this time he, what does it say, y'all? He stinketh. Don't you love that? That's like one of my favorite verses in the Bible. By this time he stinketh, for he has been dead for how many days? Jesus said to her in verse 40, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And now when he had said these things, he cried, note this with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, what do you say, saints? Loose him and let him go. Saints, stop right there. Give me your attention. If you were with, with me last week, show of hands, were you with me last week? Uh, last week, we left off, we left the Messiah standing at the tomb of Lazarus and he burst into uncontrollable tears, remember? And he's weeping. We pointed out that he wasn't weeping because Lazarus had died. He knew Lazarus was going to die and that he was going to raise him from the dead. As a matter of fact, look at John chapter 11 and look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Jesus knew that he was going to wake Lazarus up. These things he said in verse 11. Are you looking at verse 11? These things he said in verse 11. And after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I might do what? Wake him up. So Jesus knew that he was going to wake Lazarus up, and yet Jesus is weeping. So why is he weeping? Well, listen, if you got a pen, you write this down. Jesus is weeping, I believe, over sin and death itself. You see, sin and death are not a part of the original plan. You knew that, right? And the original plan for man was that 
man would live with God forever. I think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. It tells us, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. The divine sculpture is broken over the fact that that which was created in his image, he's weeping because this earth suit that is full of sin and death is nothing like his image and it's nothing like his likeness. The divine sculpture is going to ride into the city on Palm Sunday in just a few short days and he's going to weep. Luke chapter 19, I have it for you on the screen. Verse 41 tells us, as Jesus drew near the city, what did he do, saints? He wept over it, saying, if you had known this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus audibly weeps over Jerusalem because Jesus is omniscient. Omniscient means he knows everything. And Jesus is omnipotent. That means he has all power. And because he knows everything and he has all power, Jesus has the ability to look down through the quarters of time. Are y'all listening? Look down through the quarters of time to A.D. 70, and he can see with clarity like H.D. He can see with clarity when the Roman general Titus Vespasian will march into Jerusalem with his army and destroy the city of Jerusalem. And he's going to, Titus and his army, is going to take the temple down stone by stone and then actually they scrape all the gold from between, you know, that's attached to all the stones because they actually set fire to the temple and all the gold that was in the temple began to melt. Remember the golden table and the golden abra and a candelabra and all of these things and began to melt. And all that gold began to just make its way through the rocks. And so the Romans took the temple down brick by brick, just as Jesus said and scrape that gold for themselves. And that's largely how Rome began to become rich. But Jesus can see that, and he can see down through the quarters of time the destruction of Jerusalem. So he wasn't weeping here in our text. He wasn't weeping for Lazarus. He was weeping because death had been victorious over his creation because of the fall. But when Jesus died, how many of you know that he reversed the curse? How many of you know that? I'm waiting while you clap your hands there. The very first thing, and it's very interesting because the very first thing that Jesus puts back in order in the new Jerusalem is the very first thing he puts back in order is death. Aye, aye, aye. Look at Revelation chapter 21. We got time. We got a second. Look at Revelation chapter 21. Y'all blessed because y'all, they didn't do this first and second. All right. Y'all get a little extra something, something. Since you got to wait for your chicken sandwich a little later. All right. Look at, look at Revelation 21. The first thing that Jesus puts back in the original order in the new Jerusalem is death. Look at Revelation chapter 21. Look at verse 4. If you look in verse 4, say amen. And God will wipe away every tear. Matter of fact, read verse 4 with me. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death 
nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. The first thing when Jesus gathers all things to himself, the first thing I find it interesting, that's all, that he puts back in order is death is the first thing to be reversed. Now, if you've been with us through John, you know, go back to John. If if you've been with us through John, you know that John's gospel, all the way through John's gospel, Jesus makes a claim about himself, and then he backs up that claim with a miracle, yes? For example, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, and then he fed the 5,000 with two fish and how many loaves of bread? Okay, y'all, I got the answer right here for you, all right? All right, right, just try this again, all right? Y'all need coffee? All right. He fed the 5,000 with two fish and how many loaves of bread? Thank you. Jesus said, you know this, I am the light of the world. And then he gave sight to the blind man. Jesus said, I am the living water. And then he proved it by giving the woman of Samaria a spiritual drink of water and told her that she would never thirst again. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And then he proved it by the constant care of his sheep. And here, listen, in this key chapter, that's your key word key. In this key chapter in John's gospel, Jesus claimed to be the resurrection and the life, and he substantiates it by this blazing display of power as he raises the dead to life and then gives spiritual life to those who are alive. Did you catch that? In each miracle, something physical happened, and at the same time, something spiritual happens to verify his claim to be God. So get the scene. In your mind's eye. We're at a funeral. And Jesus is standing with Mary and Martha and a lot of people at the tomb of Lazarus mourning the loss of a loved one. In those days, sometimes funerals lasted seven days. Uh, They had been mourning for four days. But this funeral is about to end right here and right now. Everyone's mourning. Tears are flowing. And Jesus is weeping also. He's sharing in their sorrow. Remember I told you last week, he's a sympathetic savior. Write it down if you didn't last week. He's a sympathetic savior. Tears fall from his all-seeing eyes and they run down his cheeks. And keep in mind, in just a few short days, these are the same cheeks that will be covered in spit as they curse him and spit on him and ultimately crucify him. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus is sympathetic. He's weeping because he's a man. He's weeping because he has love for Lazarus. He's weeping because he has love for Mary and Martha. He's weeping because he's genuinely sympathetic for those in sorrow. Now, listen, one of the many reasons why I believe the Bible is inspired. Let me start here. Let me start here. Just by round of applause. How many of you believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. Clap your hands. How many believe that? Amen. We all believe that. And one of the many reasons why I believe that, I never saw this in this text before, but one of the many reasons why I believe that is because remember I told you in the beginning that the reason why, stay with me please, the reason why John wrote this gospel is to prove to us that Jesus is the Son of God. 
that Jesus is God. So for many people who tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God, that he's not God, all you got to do is start John chapter 1, verse 1, and keep on reading until they agree with you. Let the church say amen. Amen. So John is writing to help us all to understand that Jesus is God. John's gospel is written to show us that. If the Bible, listen, weren't true and in the inspired of the Holy Spirit, if John were falsely making up the facts that Jesus is God, he would never show us or tell us Jesus wept. Because that makes him human. But the very fact is, God's word is inspired, God's word is infallible, God's word is true, and the very fact that in a book that is trying to present total deity and divinity doesn't hesitate to give us a complete detailed delineation of his humanity. And it tells us and it proves to us that the Bible is inspired and accurate and written by God. You know, I think of David. I think of any story in the Bible that would prove to anybody that this has to be written by God would be the story of David and Bathsheba. Anyone writing an autobiography about themselves would not tell you about their sin. One person said amen. I can't believe that. I can't believe it. Two, I can't believe it. There you go. Nobody's going to tell you They're writing about themselves, that they were a sinner, that they took a man's wife, that they had the man killed, that they married the woman, and and they sinned before God. Nobody's going to tell you that. If you're writing stuff about yourself, you write all the good stuff. How lovely you are. How philanthropic you are. How charitable you are. Just an all-around great guy. But nobody tells about the sin. We know that the Bible is inspired because God's word tells us the truth. Somebody clap your hands and say amen. The truth. And just because David went out and did the things that he did doesn't mean we should go out and do the same thing. We should learn from that. Amen. Some of y'all thinking David got away with it. Maybe I can too. Don't do it. So we know that the word of God is inspired. Look at verse 37. And some of them, the Jews, said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blinds also have kept this man from dying? In other words, if Jesus could open blind eyes, write this in your margins, John chapter 9. Open blind eyes. Then why would he let someone he loved die? Now, some commentators say regarding verse 7 that they were being sarcastic. I don't see that because if you go one verse before that in verse 36, it tells us that they really believe that Jesus loved Lazarus. They were standing there when Jesus burst into tears. I think this is an honest, confused, perplexed question. They couldn't justify the delay of Jesus with the power of Jesus. They're thinking if Jesus loved them so much, then why didn't he go there on time? Look at verse 38. It tells us then Jesus again groaning in himself. Some of your Bible says deeply moved in the inner man came to the tomb. Now, remember I told you last week that word groaning is never a word of compassion. It always speaks of trouble, rebuke, warning, shaken, 
agitated. So right now, Jesus is disturbed, agitated, shaken, troubled. Why? Well, keep in mind, although Jesus was completely human, he was also completely holy. And right now, he's in a holy state of indignation against sin and death. He looks around and he sees the sorrow and the curse of sin, that, and that brings anguish. And then watch this, mix that anguish over sin with sorrow and sympathy and love, and mix that with his own sorrow and anticipation of his own death, and you can see why he's all torn up on the inside. Did you get me? So they're standing at the tomb, weeping. Let me tell you a little bit about the tomb. If a family was wealthy, um, you remember Lazarus? Oh, not Lazarus. Um, Joseph of Arimathea. Remember Joseph of Arimathea? He bought a new tomb and let Jesus use it. He only needed it for the weekend, but he just used it. He borrowed it. Remember? Joseph's borrowed tomb. Am I right about it? Okay. And so, and, and Joseph was wealthy. And so he had a tomb, an extra tomb, I guess. Um, in those days, in Jesus' day, if you were wealthy, if you were a wealthy family, you would have a family tomb. And this tomb is hewn out of rock. It's probably six by nine by ten. So it's pretty large. And they would often carve shelves, eight actually, eight shelves in the tomb um, get the mind's eye. You come in, three shelves on the right, three on the left, and one, uh, two right in front of you. So they would have eight shelves. And um, there was a group called uh, the Holy Society or the Chevra Khadija. Chevra Khadija. The whole, Google it. The Holy Society. And they were responsible to take the body and to wash it. They were responsible for the dead body, and they would wash the body. I think of Acts chapter 9, verse 37. It tells us when Dorcas died, when they washed her, they laid her in the upper room. The Mishnah, stay with me, I'm going somewhere. The Mishnah and the Talmud speaks of the washing of the body. And the Jews would take the body and wash the body from head to foot. And because of a verse in Ecclesiastes that talks about when you were born, you come into the world in water, they believe you should leave the world in water, thus washing. Now, in Jesus' day, the wealthy would be buried, and they would bury their loved ones in gold and silver and opulent dress, and the poor would bury their loved ones in hardly anything or whatever they had. So there was this rabbi, this famous rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel felt that that was improper because we come into the world with nothing. He thought we should leave with nothing. So Gamaliel made an edict that the takrakim, the takrakim or the shroud should be used and people should be buried all the same way, rather rich or poor. If you're with me so far, say amen. So they would then now, because of Gamaliel, they would take this long piece of linen, about four feet wide, uh, twice as long as your body, and they would put spices in it and around you to kind of knock down the smell and wrap your body and wrap your limbs. They would individually wrap your feet individually wrap your hands, individually wrap your arms and your legs, 
and they would put a napkin around your head to hold up your chin, and then they would take the tuck rakim, the shroud, and put it around your head, and then place the body into the tomb. Um, the Jews didn't wrap like uh, a mummy. Uh, mummy wrappings were for what culture of people? Egyptians, very good. Uh, they didn't embalm because embalming was also Egyptian. They would roll the stone, put the body in, roll the stone in front of the tomb to be sealed to keep people from entering and to keep grave robbers away from the tomb. Now, two years later, they would come back and the body would often have disintegrated by then. And they would take the bones and take the ashes and put them in a box or a clay pot called an ossuary. And then they would, um, that would open up a ledge in the tomb for another family member. You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch in Calvary Chapel, Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at 1-800-293-0923. That's 1-800-293-0923. You may listen to today's broadcast in its entirety by visiting the Media Library on our website at cccarry.org. We would like to thank you for tuning in to Salt and Light and pray that you have been blessed. Until next time, may you be salt and light.